0: Man, I love the youth bands, that was amazing. I'm like over here struggling to clap and sing at the same time. They're playing two different instruments and phenomenal. Michael does such a great job working with the students and then they they give a lot of... They give a a lot of effort and and time into that, so just super grateful for them and and the way they're using their gifts for God's glory. Um, My name is Kyle Denny. If we haven't met before, I am uh, the youth pastor around here, so I'm in charge of middle school and high school ministries. Uh, We are going to take a pause from our parable study, and we're going to be in Titus 3 today. So there should be some Bibles in the racks below you. It may not look like it. Sometimes it's a scavenger hunt, uh, but they could be shoved way back. Otherwise, we'll put the verses on the screen, um, or you can pull your phone out. I won't publicly shame you and accuse you of texting. It's fine. You can do it. Uh, And while you're getting there, Titus 3, I I thought I would share a story with you. Um, So, if you know me, then then you may know that that I love riddles, and I love puzzles, and I love just a mystery, just thinking things through. And so, I I recently came across a report for an airplane crash that happened in 2015. So, it was a twin-engine Keystone aircraft, and it was carrying eight passengers, and, and all of them survived with minor injuries. But what happened was it started out as a normal day, they fueled their tanks up, they went through the normal checklist, the normal procedures, and then they, they took off. But, but shortly after, the, the worst thing happened. Both of their engines just, just stopped working. And the mystery was that the, the equipment wasn't malfunctioning. There was nothing wrong with the equipment. And they had flown this aircraft before many times, And there wasn't anything external going on. It's not like a whole flock of birds flew into it or anything. And their tanks were filled with a sufficient amount of fuel. So what happened? Why did the plane go down? Well, I will let you chew on that and linger on that for a while. We're going to be in Titus 3. And and I I just like to read the passage out in front of us. So uh, humor me with that while we we read uh, verses 1 to 8. It's written, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful in hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Now, it kind of feels like we walked halfway into a conversation, doesn't it? and that's because we essentially have, uh, the person that wrote this, his name is Paul, and he is this key teacher. He, he's a disciple of Jesus, uh, an apostle of Jesus, and he's writing to a beloved friend, a, a mentee named Titus. And, and when he writes to Titus, he, he has left him on an island, Crete, behind it says in uh, chapter one, verse five, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, so Titus is supposed to go around and appoint all these elders in the different towns and, and that would be hard enough. Could you imagine doing that? And, and yet, Paul then goes to describe what these people are prone to. Look at chapter one, verse 12 with me. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Like this was their reputation and they themselves recognized it. Or if you want an outside account, a a Greek historian named Polybius, he, he said that Cretans are involved in constant broils, both public and private, and in murders and civil wars. Yikes, like That's probably not where you're going to go vacationing, is it? Small task, Titus, just just put that all in order, please. No, it's a huge responsibility. And so Paul writes to check in with him, to encourage him. And with that bit of context, we get to chapter 3. Verse 1 to 2, he writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, and to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, you, you can't help but wonder when, when Titus gets to this point in the letter, like, does he just groan a little bit? Like, like, does he go, oh, I'm supposed to remind the people that are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, those people, remind them to be submissive to rulers and governments. Like, I, I'm thinking that's going to go super well for him, right? But it's crucial that he gives this reminder. Let's take a look at the list. The first verse is pointing mainly to rulers and authorities, or for us today, governments. And it's reassuring to know that there's nothing new under the sun. We have 2,000 years of history to learn from as a human population. And we're still basically the same. We still rebel against authority. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, if you're Democrat, if you're independent, if you're hiding under a rock, like we still want to rebel against authority. And Paul says, remind them. It's not a one and done sort of thing, but a continual pressing. Keep pressing on them that they're supposed to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And not just submissive, they're supposed to obey them in what they're called to do. But why? So my, my oldest son, Zeke, he, he just turned two this past summer. And he entered into the, the why phase. Um, if you're a parent with young children, uh, or if you've had young children in the past, you can feel my pain. Because there's no winning that battle. Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't think he even knows what that word means sometimes. Because I'll tell him to do something, I'll say, hey buddy, it's time to go to sleep. And, and he'll say, Why? And I'll answer, hey, well, because we need our sleep. Why? Well, because our, we get all grumpy and our bodies break down and, and, and we're designed to have sleep. But why, Dad? I don't know, son. That, that's how God designed us. It's time to obey. We're going to go to bed. But I don't want to. There it is. If we could have started with that, we would have saved like five minutes of conversation leading up to that. It's, it's, it's a hard issue. Well, well, why do we have to be submissive to a broken system? I mean, they aren't Jesus. And yet, Jesus did submit to corrupt rulers and authorities of his day. And, and that just blows my mind. Because he's God. He's upholding their very being. And yet, he chooses to submit to what they do. Uh, he tells his followers and opponents, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, Matthew twenty-two, twenty-one. 21. And he told Pontius Pilate, the man that was going to approve of his execution, he said, you can only do this because God the Father has allowed it. Here's the why. Look at Romans 13:1 with me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a hard pill to swallow some days, isn't it? Like, no authority except from God? What about all those evil things that rulers and authorities have done to people? You're telling me that God instituted that? Let me tread lightly here. I I know this is a loaded subject. I'm telling you that that God is infinitely good and that he values authority. He, He doesn't stand behind the wicked things that those in authority may choose to do and they will have to give an answer for that someday. But he values order. And order only comes from authority and authority only comes from God himself. We're to submit to governing authorities with with one exception, unless it puts us at odds against God himself. And then we're called to peacefully and appropriately oppose it. And all the while, we're still called to pray for our leaders. But, But sometimes it doesn't matter if we have the why. We're toddlers at heart, and we just don't want to. Or I won't put that on you. I'm a toddler at heart. And I just don't want to submit to authority sometimes. I'd rather be my own authority. And and that traces all the way back to Adam and Eve. Paul says, remind them. Continue to to press upon them that they need to submit and obey. I wish we had more time to unpack this, but our our senior pastor, Mark Kreen, he taught on this recently when he was in Romans. If you're struggling with this, or, or if you'd like to hear more or just a fresh reminder, I would highly encourage you to go to our website. It's nhchurch.com, the Roman series under messages. It's sermon number 80 and 81. And we put that in your your notes so you don't have to memorize that or anything. It's there for you for later. Paul continues in the list. He says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be ready for every good work. To me, that list only gets harder as the verse goes on. To be ready for every good work. Well, ready implies this, this sense of being prepared at once, without hesitation. Uh, I think of sprinters in track that, that they have their spike shoes on, their spikes, their shoelaces are tied, their feet are set. It's been building up to this moment. They're just anticipating the gun to go off, they're waiting for it, and they're ready. Is that how we are positioning ourselves? And preparing ourselves for good works. Are we ready for every good works? Not just the big ones, the obvious ones, but but what about the small ones? What about the inconsequential ones? The inconvenient ones? That's hard to do. Paul continues on in verse two. He says, he broadens the scope to say, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Malign, when was the last time you used that word? It's evil thoughts and words that are are directed at someone you hold in contempt, someone you dislike. So for example, as I've been talking about governments, what's been bubbling up? Has a certain contempt for someone risen to the surface? Where you just wanna lash out and tear them down? Or, Or if we bring it to the sports arena, when the Spartans got shut out against Wisconsin, this is a safe place, it's okay, we're still in therapy about it. When they got shut out against Wisconsin, what bubbled up? Like, were you just boasting about how good the players and the coach were? And Wolverines, you're not excluded from that either. When we lost to Wisconsin, what were you thinking? Like, what bubbled up for you? Were you saying how good MSU was? When have we been tempted to tear someone down. At work, in our family dynamics, with our teachers or professors at school, it's so easy to speak harshly of others, isn't it? Like especially when they're not around, even if we don't know them. Like I'm not above that. I I fall into that and yet that's not how we're supposed to act. it's, It's much harder to treat someone as though they're made in the image of God. Even if they don't believe in Jesus, they're still made in the image of God. And then he talks about being peaceable, and that follows along the same lines. The, The Greek literally means to not fight. issues. It's choosing to hold your tongue to save or build up that relationship. There are people that, that we can have a discussion with, people that, that know us and it's not going to rupture things. But if we're being honest, us as Americans, we, we don't do super well at that. Like if the Cretans are known for being liars, we're known for being opinionated and shouting over the top of each other. I don't care if you have a PhD. I read an article on Google for five minutes. I read a headline of an article on Google for five minutes. And we're just quick to become divisive. Can you offer peace rather than division? Look, when when we start talking of where to send our kids to school, who we're going to vote for, if we're going to vaccinate our kids or not, those can quickly become powder kegs especially to outsiders or to friends that disagree with us? Could you offer peace rather than prove why your stance is better? And then we get to gentle. And I feel like gentleness just gets a bad rap. Like you look at verse 2 and out of all those things, you probably don't want to be known as as gentle. Uh, I mean, sometimes we we might confuse it for fragile and, and that's not what Paul's talking about. He says, are you lenient with others? Or do you hold people to a very strict level? Is there grace in your interactions, especially when they don't deserve it? Or do you just unleash on people, especially people that are annoying to you? And finally, showing every consideration for all men. It's being humble in the sense that you patiently bear wrongs. And when the time is right, instead of getting your revenge, instead of retaliating, you choose to spring into action to help them. It describes Christ himself in 2 Corinthians 10.1. It's taking your eyes off yourself and looking to others. It's described in different places as meekness and as humility. And it's meant to be demonstrated to all people, even the wicked ones. How are we doing with that, New Hope? If we look at our Facebook feeds, our Instagrams, our Twitter accounts, our TikToks, or or whatever other social media platform is out there, would others think of us as showing every consideration toward all people? Do they see leniency and grace in our comments? Or or would they find us passive-aggressive? Would they find us divisive and offensive on, on things that are not Jesus? Are we destroying our witness in order to enlighten others and, and win arguments? I read a good quote a few years ago that I've had hanging on my bulletin board as a reminder. It's, it's from a 1600s Puritan preacher, and it, it really sums up verse 2 well. Uh, Richard says. It would be a good contest among Christians. One to labor to give no offense and the other labor to take none. The best of men are severe to themselves and tender over others. That's what verse two has been talking about. We're trying to labor hard to not offend people unnecessarily. And then I like the second thing he added there. It's our job to to try to take no offense from other people. He says we're to be severe over ourselves. We're supposed to find where we fall short quickly but then be tender when other people do. I love that. Now, we need to be very careful with passages like this because if I just gave you these first two verses, then I failed you as a pastor. There's something deeper here good works. And and the good works are important. Don't mishear me. Paul commands them for a reason. But what comes after is crucial for our understanding. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, How would you like to have that on your job resume or your college application? Mr. Denny, I see that you have been foolish, disobedient, led astray, you're a slave to various passions and pleasures, you've passed your days in malice and envy, you're hated by others and you in turn hate them. I'm impressed you've made it this far into the interview process. But unfortunately, all of those would disqualify you from this position, have a nice day. And yet, this is on all of our resumes, all of our college applications. You'll notice that Paul doesn't just point the finger at them, he includes himself in this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is all of our stories. Now, if you've been around New Hope for a while, you might know that I'm also the director of finance and I think that gives me the, the unique privilege to bring math into the teachings, right? So I got a little equation up there for us. If you hate math, it's okay. It'll be fine. We'll get through this. Um, but, but I wanted to infuse some theology into this. And so instead of A plus B, if we look at foolish plus disobedient, it is always going to lead to us being deceived and led astray. Always. Always. First, we start with foolish. We, we either didn't know about Jesus or we stubbornly refused the truth about him. That's what a fool is. It's someone who lacks knowledge or refuses truth. And when you mix in the action of being disobedient, of doing the exact opposite of what God calls good, it's always gonna result in us being deceived, to being led astray, going down the wrong path path. Instead of turning to God for for our worth, we turn to other things. We, We actually get enslaved to our passions and pleasures. Something else becomes our ultimate worth. What we live for. It's no longer I eat to live. It's I live to eat. It's all about staying fit and doing exercise. It's all about work and keeping our bosses or clients happy. It's all about our kids and making sure they have the best opportunities, that they turn out to be the best people that they can possibly be. And those aren't bad things in and of themselves. It's when we make them the focus of our entire being that we become enslaved to them. We can be enslaved to pleasure itself. We need to make sure we're still having fun. We actually have words in our vocabulary now like FOMO which is fear of missing out. There's an anxiety we have because we're afraid that we're missing pleasure. We become enslaved to these passions and pleasures and and they're all we can think about. They they mutate into addictions and they hold a mental and spiritual control over us Where, where if something doesn't go the right way, where it gets taken out from under us, we turn into a wreck Is that you this morning? Do you feel enslaved to something this morning? This is who we were before we were Christians. This is how we started out. And and the longer you're in this, the more your life spirals down. Look, when, when you're in this, you slowly start to feel with malice and envy because of this enslavement. You're continually dissatisfied with where you're at. Our furniture isn't good enough. Our job position needs to be higher. Our income needs to be bigger. I need to be skinnier. People need to respect me more. I need to be more buff. And and we look around at the people near us. and, And we long for what they have. Oh, we dress it up. We use terms like we're ambitious. But the truth is we're dissatisfied. We're not content. We need more in social media for, for all the good things it brings to the table. It, it fuels envy, doesn't it? Like it? It shows you all the good things that other people have and never the bad, never the struggles or, or any of the negatives that come with it. Malice joins in and malice is an ill will towards others. It, it's not just that they have it and we want it, but we deserve to have it, Not them. It grows up into hate, both us hating others and, and them hating us. So recently, a popular video game called Fortnite, uh, without clear warning, temporarily suspended their entire game. So this is millions of people that play this game. And the outcry was just ridiculous. Like, like people went nuts. Nobody was saying, thanks, Fortnite. That, that was a great season. I really appreciate that. That was a cool map. Thank you. No, they they were going into shock and withdrawal. They were having meltdowns. And what was weird to me was not just the gamers' reaction, but if there was a student playing, it was their parents' reaction. Like, they took to the Twitter feed and they started blasting the producers. They were saying, it's your fault my kid has depression. It's your fault my kid is going into withdrawal. He cried himself to sleep last night. They are hating these producers over a video game. Now, I love video games when they're used in a self-controlled way so I'm not condemning them but it's a crisp picture. Look, Whether it's a video game or a different passion or pleasure, when that is what we pour our soul into, it controls us. When it gets removed, our, our world just gets turned upside down and we get this clear picture of the muck That gets churned up into our hearts. Verse 3 is all about humanity. It's all about what we have done. For for Christians, what we once were. But but then it pivots, it it becomes about what we have received. It becomes all about God. Look at verse 4 But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the spirit. But when? You you can hear the pivot there. These were once true of us, and then the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus Christ appeared. Now, normally during a big catastrophe, it's enough to jolt us awake. Newscasters start asking, where was God? Doesn't he care? And and that can feel like a legit question. It's tough to see God's goodness in this broken world sometimes. But his love can be shown no higher than the fact that he sent Jesus to save us. His grace manifested in human form. Philippians 2 would say that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So when people ask, where is God, doesn't he care The answer is overwhelmingly, yes. We see that through Jesus and his death on the cross. And he he goes into the belly of the beast and he obliterates death from the inside out. He pays for every single one of our sins, past, present, and future. They're all taken away. There is no higher level of caring available. Because there's no higher gift that God could have given us. God is all in on you. He he takes the chips and he pushes them all in. His loving kindness has appeared and it's Jesus. Look at that verse 5 again uh, on how he saved us. He didn't save us because of our good works. And he didn't save us through our good works. That's not what they're for Ultimately, he saved us because of his mercy through the washing and regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here's a quote I came across from a famous English preacher. If you've been around church for a while, you might have heard the name Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon says, works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation, and the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. I like his uh, use of the word undiluted mercy. It really speaks to me, because if our works play a role in our salvation, if our works help get us into heaven, then some of God's mercy gets diluted, doesn't it? Like sure, God did 99% of the work, but I did 1%. Like there's this, this, uh, ability to just grab onto that. No, God did 100% of the work. Our good deeds had nothing to do with it. It was his mercy. Now, mercy can, can be kind of like a vague term for me sometimes, so I found a few definitions to help narrow in on what we mean here. One said that mercy is kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Another definition I read defined mercy as compassion to the miserable, And I love that, so I kind of tacked that on to the end there. If we were left to our own devices, we would still be enslaved to our passions and pleasures and they would lead to our self-destruction. God responded to our miserable state with kindness. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest extent possible. If you're at the point where, where you don't need Jesus, how can he show you his mercy? It would be as though he paid off the debt of a gambling addict without the addict ever admitting there was a problem. It just makes things worse. How can the Spirit renew you if you got this, if you can handle it on your own? The main opposition Jesus was running up against in his earthly ministry were religious people, Jews that thought they were good enough. They were professionals at doing good works, but they did them with the wrong heart. Do you need Jesus in your life? Do you continue to need Jesus in your life? He didn't save us because of our good works, nor did he save us through our good works. He saved us according to his mercy through the washing and regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So simply stated, this this washing is what the Holy Spirit does. It involves rebirth and renewal. Doesn't that sound amazing? Don't you want rebirth and renewal in your life? Every sinful thing you've ever done, God has just washed it away. Whatever you've done this week, he's taken that from you. We don't need to walk in shame and disgrace. He's offering us life and freedom at the highest level. Let the Spirit continue to renew you through that. Paul elsewhere says that that we're a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Once you're a new creation, you can't lose your creation status. Like when you look at butterflies, they don't turn back into caterpillars. Sorry for all the dudes in the room that I just called butterflies I appreciate your sacrifice though, it needed to be said. Paul goes on to describe the gifting of the Holy Spirit. In verse six he says, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I I like that Paul uses the word richly. He richly poured the Spirit out on us. God, God was not rationing He was not giving us just enough of the spirit to get by. We're not Oliver Twist in this story. No, if you're a believer in Christ, he has given you the spirit and he's given you him abundantly. He goes on to say that we're justified, which is a legal term. And it means that we're declared innocent by his grace. He's already done this. He's already saved us. And it's not just to save us, but that we might become heirs, that we might become his children, his family. Now that that can come across a little wishy-washy because Paul uses terms like we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But early in the letter, Paul clarifies in Titus 1-2, he says it's a hope according to God who never lies, who promised that this was going to happen. It's a hope because it's not fully realized, but it is certain. This is our end game. He's all in on us, he pushes all the chips in that we might become part of his family. And here we get the first glimpse of of our relationship to good works. They don't save us, so, so why are good works important? Well, have you ever heard the phrase like father, like son, or daughter? It's because God does them and we are now heirs. We're meant to follow after him. It's who we are. Once we were disobedient and malicious. Now we're sons and daughters of God. That is our identity. And he says, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deed. These things are good and profitable for men. It's a little unclear what Paul means by this statement. Some other versions say this saying, but there's no quotes preceding it. So so what part is Paul talking about? Is he talking about a a portion of verses four to seven or, or the whole thing? I would say it's probably the whole thing of verses four to seven because it's a long sentence in Greek and it may have possibly been a creed for the early church but regardless, the base, the the thing that all of this is centering around is us being saved by God's mercy. That's the center. He says to speak confidently and it carries the idea of insisting on these things. Like my son that insists to me about different stuff. Being saved according to this mercy, according to his mercy, is what gives Titus the confidence to insist on good works when these people were formerly hate-filled, lying beasts. This insisting of, of good works is also meant to for us believers to pause. We're supposed to give careful thought, sustained thought to doing these good deeds. So so being saved by God's mercy, it's a call to action. These good works are our chance to show the goodness of God, to point to him. And that leads us to the second thing that works are for. They lay the groundwork for the gospel. I said we need to be very careful with passages like these. Because if I only gave you the first two verses, I would have failed you as a pastor. It's true, we need to do them. We need to give sustained thought. We have to be ready to, for every good work. But there's the potential that this message can turn into how we just need to try harder, how we just need to be better people. And if that is our motivation, then we're destined for a crash course. These good works will not fly. So the answer to the mystery of the plane, why it went down when everything was working the way it was supposed to, is because even though they they filled the plane up with fuel, they filled it up with jet fuel instead of aviation gas. And so the fuel wouldn't work with the engine. The plane wasn't designed like that. Are you putting the wrong fuel in your tank this morning? Are you performing good works because you want to look good? Or because you think it will get you into heaven? That will fail us in the long run. If it's just I have to do these good works because my pastor told me I should or because I think they'll make me a better person, then we lose the kindness and the mercy That needs to be infused in these good works. They're only sustainable if they come from the love that Jesus has for us. That's the right fuel. If it's about how Jesus doesn't slander me, how how he didn't speak evil of me when he had every right to, that does something to me. Like I, I, I want to extend that to others. I can do that for others even when it seems impossible. If it's about how Jesus was tender with me, how he was gentle, and he showed grace in his interactions with me, then I can do that for other people, and I want to spread that to other people. I want to be more like Jesus. Each morning, you get a choice. What are you gonna fuel your hearts up with? Will you choose God's mercy or one of the many other alternatives out there. He, he's given us his spirit abundantly. He's given us everything we need in Jesus. Everything to make these good works fly. It's who we are as believers. And, and look, maybe this is new to you. Maybe you've never heard of Jesus or never understood it. Or maybe this just hasn't been your relationship with God. If that's you I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I'd love to tell you how good God is that you might believe in him, that that you might become part of his family. Let me pray for us tonight to close this out. Lord, I I thank you so much for all these individuals here um, and and those that may be live streaming as well, that that they would sacrifice their time, Lord, a, a Sunday morning to hear about you, to be with one another, I pray that you would bless those efforts. I thank you for your mercy, God, that I don't have to be perfect for you to accept me, that you loved me as I was. And I pray that that would go out in this church. I pray that we would do wonderful works, good works, and that you would get the glory for them, that it would just reflect your loving kindness. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he obliterated death and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. It's good to be with you, New Hope.